0: Hidden Gems, episode 33, Tom Vassell's most infamous reviews. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I'm Jason. And I'm Cameron. Thanks for listening to our show. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, folks.
1: So
2: we're finally doing the episode.
1: We're doing queen games tonight, right? <laughs> <laughs> Nope. (laughs) Only the episode that we've been promising for four or so episodes. For sure. It's been
0: two months easy. Cameron's
2: gotten into a rut just reading the credits because it's the same credits every time introducing this episode.
0: Yeah, we have pump faked this one so many times, folks, and we're sorry for the confusion. I really blame Mike Regan and my board game weekend for my birthday because I was convinced we were going to get all these games played over my birthday weekend, and we ended up playing Terraforming Mars like five times.
1: Terraform Mars Teach you. At his request. Mars Teach you. Yeah, and Teach yeah. you. And Ping Pong. We blame <laughs> Ping Pong. Right, yeah. So yeah.
0: it just didn't happen the way that I thought it was going to, but we got there. It's happening tonight, folks.
2: Plus two of these games are like seven hours long. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I not usually really try cool. to do a couple of filler ish games or lighter, shorter games, and then one longer game, and I did not follow that formula this time. And yeah. We had to I've go for the most
1: infamous here. ones, which meant we played some longer games.
0: Yeah, I mean for this episode, Hawaii and Vasco da Gama had to be on there right they had to happen so it was just unavoidable
2: all right well Cameron you're back it's always good to have you back what's been going on in your life
1: yeah, well, apart from enjoying life as a dad and life as a woodworker and life as a software engineer, you guys know, and I have this reputation now, and I just fully own it. I just bask in it when <laughs> everyone laughs at me when I tell them that I've picked up a new hobby. Uh, another one? <laughs> yeah, but I have I have a friend. His name's Brandon. He's a friend of the show. Mm-hmm. And he's really good at making cocktails, and he, and he makes all of his own stuff to put mm-hmm. in them. And I've jumped on this train. I've gotten into making bitters. So I've turned my little alcohol cabinet in the kitchen into my bitters manufacturing center. (laughs) I've got all these jars of weird stuff. And I've been ordering all these weird powders from herb stores. Yeah. I build a little shelf to hang all my little jars of cinchana powder and cinnamon and orange peel and everything. So it looks like
0: a D&D apothecary shop. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, I've I <laughs> is got totally the cool, thematic for you. I've
1: got the cool little labels and everything. <laughs> so it looks really cool. The fun thing about it is I have so many hobbies that take like tons of time. Board games, woodworking projects. This one, I can literally plop some stuff in a jar, stick it in there for a few weeks, just let it do it yeah pull it back out and basically just putting stuff into everclear and seeing what happens flavor wise (laughs) so it's been quite fun to get into and i've gotten to explore some books and recipes and stuff like that nice
0: it's a cool hobby to get into man i appreciate it because bitters are expensive yeah they are they are yeah i would love to oh i'll be bringing them
1: over my goal is to get them featured in the show at some point in a cocktail (laughs) love it cool what have you been up to jason
2: yeah, we talked about this before the show. I don't I have a huge update this time around, other than one of y'all two needs to start playing Tunic. I, to, I talked about this last time, and it just keeps getting better and better. So one of y'all needs to play. But H- have yeah. you finished it now? I'm very close.
0: Okay, because I remember so. you were trying to finish it before last episode, but you're still not there. Well, I'm not being critical because I'm not going to be done with Elden Ring until like 2024.
1: <laughs> but I'm just curious.
2: Yeah, I can't really explain why I'm not at the end yet without giving something
0: away, okay. so yeah, I don't want to we'll, hear it. But, I
1: definitely yeah. want to look into it. I looked it up only in so far to check that it's not on Nintendo Switch, so naturally I'm playing Zelda yeah. still.
0: Brief synopsis of tunic for any new listeners or maybe if they didn't listen to the last episode. This is a really cool concept for a game.
2: Yeah, so this is a a Zelda-style game, and I won't go into all the details I did last time, but essentially there's puzzle elements to it that are more than your typical figure-out-how-to-explore-the-dungeon-type puzzle in a Zelda game. Stuff that's very reminiscent of other puzzle games that we need to talk about on the show. I think we talked about, a long time ago, A Fool's Errand, which is an ancient 1980s puzzle-style game. There are elements of that in it.
0: Mike Selinker recommended. The,
2: The Witness... All kind all Ugh, kinds of the witness amazing puzzle game elements in it, and the kind of the key feature of it is that you are discovering pages of the manual to the game throughout, so it gives you no information, everything's written in a foreign language that you can't understand it's just runes, but you get bits and pieces of the story as you uncover pages of the manual, and it's just very clever,
0: yeah, when I hear you describe it, it feels like it's going to have a lot of those aha mind-blowing moments yeah, to it yeah that i just crave in games like that you know i, I looked up yep. the
1: trailers it looks pretty great
2: <laughs> yeah it's deceiving because you're playing as this cute little fox and you're like oh this is <laughs> you know a light little game that i'll just knock out in a couple minutes but no there's a lot to it so yeah what do you got going on chris
0: yeah so not that removed from you jason i have a game to talk about tonight that is not Elden Ring. Ooh. So, yeah. Yes. So you took
2: time to play another game, and you didn't play Tunic. I did. I I'm did. offended.
0: <laughs> so one of my kids said, hey, Dad, can we play the game together? And I was like, no, I'm playing Elden Ring. <laughs> 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 no, I was like, oh, of course. You know, I like playing games with my kids. All my kids are gamers, video gamers. They love playing video games. And my youngest son, Hayes, likes playing games cooperatively with me. So we dusted off an oldie but a goodie okay that we really enjoy and i just forgot how much fun this game is if you're looking for a game to play locally all on the same screen and have a hilariously fun time you need to check out bro force
1: oh man yeah or bro force yeah that's that's right (laughs) yeah yeah
0: so we played bro force i know it sounds ridiculous but this it game is. is great. It is and it, <laughs> it is, is ridiculous. ridiculous. <laughs> it is ridiculous, but it is a lot of fun and not an easy game. It's a challenging no. game for sure, but a lot of fun. So, brief synopsis of Bro Force it's a 2D pixelated style side scroller where you play as one of 23 bros <laughs> that are randomly assigned <laughs> yeah, to you. Yeah. So, you've got Indiana Brones, Brobo Cop, <laughs> who else we got? the Brominator, Ram Bro. And my personal favorite is McBrover, which is MacGyver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which, when I was a kid, I loved MacGyver. Did you watch is it, MacGyver? See, was that your time? Out the one
1: throws out the bombs with the turkey leg? Yes, it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he's the one that throws the dynamite stuffed turkeys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you
1: watch MacGyver? I mean, it, was before it would have read. been reruns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You like MacGyver?
2: I remember it being on. But never really watched it. Okay. More Knight said, Rider.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Love Knight Rider. MacGyver was just a... I loved that show as a kid. So I just always loved playing McBrover in this game. <laughs> but at any rate, like I said, you're playing as one of these bros. And very much in the uh, old school NES Contra style, you get hit one time, you are dead. Okay? Right. And there is danger everywhere in this game. You're going to die a lot. The good thing about the game is the boards are really short. You can complete it in about a minute if you survive. Yeah. That's the thing, and you can rescue other bros who are in prison throughout the board. And if you open their cell, you get another life, and you take on the role of that bro. Yeah, hilarious, over the top. Boss battles are great. You fight these ridiculous yeah, things like absurd the absurd names, the Terror Cannon <laughs> that shoots terrorists out it, out <laughs> of it at you, and then probably the greatest single final boss in all of video game history. You fight Satan. <laughs>
1: I haven't gotten there yet.
0: Oh, yeah. You actually kill Satan <laughs> okay. in, in the final okay. level of the game, which is pretty fantastic. He's huge and muscular and evil, and you're trying to defeat him. So nice. I'm telling you, folks, don't sleep on Bro Force. That's all I'm saying. It's a ton of fun if you're looking for just something to pick up and play. Yeah. It's clean. It's not, well. Yeah.
1: Did, it's bloody but it's too, blu- eight bit blood it's eight bit <laughs> blood right yeah it's
0: really not bad at all so check it out Broforce, love it oh, that's funny. i know you've played it yeah. Sometime. oh
1: yeah yeah every once in a while <laughs> casey walks into the room big eye roll it's great <laughs> all right well we do have an announcement we'd like to make for the show so we're gonna have a new schedule for the summer It takes a lot of effort and energy to make a podcast in general. Even more so when you have to do the kind of preparation that we do for this show where we have to play the games. We don't come to things cold turkey and just talk off the top of our heads. So it takes a lot of game time. And with vacations and babies and all sorts of stuff, we just are looking at the summer and going, hey... It would probably be a lot easier to live our lives if we had a little bit of a different schedule for the show. We certainly don't want to diminish anything on the part of our audience. We don't want this to take away from your experience from the show. So we're not going to completely take a break for the summer. We're just going to modify the schedule a little bit. And Jason, you want to fill us in on the details?
2: Yeah, so we've talked about it a little bit as a group. And just to reemphasize your point, Cameron, it takes a lot to do this. Yeah, we're definitely still all in on this show for sure. Oh, yeah, I don't want to speak for you guys, but I'm pretty sure I can that this is a super enjoyable thing for the three of us. But just thinking through the summer, we're deciding to move to an every three week schedule instead of an every two week schedule. And again, just to reemphasize, this is for the summer. Yeah, yeah. we don't plan to do this permanently. It just feels right. Just talking it through, we felt that a three week schedule would just give us a little bit more breathing room get some more games under our belt during the time that we do have, get us set up for the fall.
0: Yeah. yeah. Please don't panic. Like, <laughs> like Jason and Cameron said, we're not going anywhere. This isn't a bad sign. This is really more just for the health of our families and to continue to be able to do a good job in the podcast because we do get so busy over the summer that we don't want to start getting into a rut of where we're not playing games sufficiently to be able to review them because that would be doing you all a disservice slash just burning out and getting overwhelmed. Like I said, I wish... That this was my full-time job? I really do. (laughs) I would do it if I could financially, but obviously I can't. I'm a doctor. The other guys have full-time jobs. We're just very busy. We have lots of kids, and so we need just a breather. But like Jason said, we'll be back in the fall, back on a normal schedule. This will only be for just a couple of months. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So thanks to everyone for tuning into the show and yeah. tune in over the summer. There will be episodes. We'll yep. get some more guests on the show. We're actually looking forward to that. We've got yeah, so many we, great people in we've our community. Got a great that guest would love to up. be on the show and this will be their chance to get in there too.
0: Yeah, yeah. I won't spoil it, but we do have one board game contributor who he knows who he is has been in the hobby as long as I have, if not longer, and he does great content. We're going to have him on in a few months. Super excited. So we got good stuff coming for sure.
2: And perhaps our first designer right
0: yes yep that's also, also coming in up. the in the works as well very from very exciting a, across the pond oh yeah yeah looking forward to that yeah it's gonna be cool
1: very cool all right well as usual we like to enjoy a cocktail to go along with every episode what are we drinking tonight chris
0: yeah this was another super easy one for me tonight guys <laughs> so as you heard from the title of the show we're talking about tom vassel and some of his most notorious or infamous reviews And for me, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of Tom and cocktails is Tom Collins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Got a tasty one here tonight. It is one of my favorite, favorite cocktails for sure. I make it regularly just because, just because I enjoy it. Nice. Real simple, two ounces of gin, one ounce of lemon juice, and a half an ounce to three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup. Add it to a highball glass with ice, and then you just top it with club soda and stir. Easy.
2: I'm going to have to admit that I don't think I've ever had a Tom Collins. No way. I've had a million gin and tonics. Well, not a million. I'm not not an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) Had a lot of gin and tonics because I do like that drink very much. But I I have to say, it's pretty good. It's like a lemon gin and tonic.
0: It is. It's good summer drink.
1: I'm just a little disappointed that you didn't just call it a Tom Vassel, put some Angst bitters or sorry Angostura (laughs) bitters on top, and call it a Tom Vassel. throw some
0: bitters in there. Yeah, 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 for sure. (laughs) Foreshadowing. But in all seriousness, I guess we'll segue into talking about Tom Vassell a little bit. As we do in these themed episodes, we usually talk a little bit about the designer that we're going to be talking about or the publisher. This particular instance, we're talking about games that Tom has reviewed that he gave pretty negative reviews to. And we want to look at these and see if we agree with them. The main reason I picked them isn't just because they were overwhelmingly negative, because he gives a lot of games negative reviews. And rightfully so, I think Tom is a very fair reviewer. He rates games very strongly, and he'll rate games very poorly. He doesn't pull any punches. But these particular games generated at least some sort of outcry in the community that maybe they felt like they were unfairly rated, or that maybe that grade wasn't deserved. And just given the outlandish nature of some of these reviews, I couldn't resist to look at them (laughs) ourselves. And a lot of these I would consider to be hidden gems at this point. So that's why we're doing it. I'll also give one more conditional statement and say before we go into these reviews, that I've been labeled as somewhat of a Tom Vassell fanboy. (laughs) A little bit? A little bit. And I think that's fair. I would say that the Dice Tower has been a part of my life for 10 years. There are not many days that go by for the last 10 years where I have not heard Tom Vassell's voice, which sounds a little (laughs) weird. That's quite weird. It is, right? But it's true. When you listen to these people for so long, you do start to feel like you know them. you know. And I can say that about Tom.
2: Maybe someday we'll be able to claim... That every day of their life, they've
0: heard Chris. Yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> maybe he might listen to this episode. I've groveled and begged him to listen to our podcast a few times. <laughs> and maybe this might be the one where he finally does it. But yeah, excited to talk about Tom tonight. So just really briefly, Tom is 45 years old. He currently lives in Florida. I think Homestead, Florida, if I'm not mistaken. And just give a little have bit of... you his up- address too? Yeah, that's right. Follow him on Facebook. Stalk him. Going back to his earliest days, he says that his family really enjoyed playing games. They were big board game players growing up, which is kind of unusual in that time period of mm-hmm. like the 70s and the 80s. But they loved games like Monopoly, Uno, Pit, interestingly, Careers. But he says the game that he first remembers is Life. And mm-hmm. he says it's because of that spinner. Mm-hmm. You guys know what I'm talking about?
2: Dude, that was like the game to play yes. when I was little. You had the 3D mountains and the spinner? Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I am sure... I have never played life correctly. But when I was a kid, we <laughs> played it, quote unquote, all the time. Because we loved grabbing that little knob in the center and turning the wheel. It was like Wheel of Fortune, almost. Such a cool little gimmick.
2: Yeah. You put the pink peg in, and you put the blue peg in, and then you have baby pegs. <laughs>
0: what? Yeah. You have kids. See, this is what I'm saying. Right. I don't think I've ever played it was correctly. the first game
1: that had a boom boom hut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, need to we need to play life. That's just all there is to it.
0: So, from that point, when he entered more of his teenage years, he said a big turning point for him was when he played Stratego. Because he began to realize that games were not just party games or luck-based, but there were actually some games that were fairly deterministic, you know, and had a good bit of strategy to them, which I would say Stratego is a very strategic game for its time, for sure, and still to this day. Otherwise, it might be misnamed. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Other games he really enjoyed, Scotland Yard, Fortress America, Axis and Allies, and Hero Quest. And he particularly points out Hero Quest because... Tom Vassell is a Christian like we are and he was raised in a Christian home and he was not allowed to play Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> <laughs> because he grew up in the 80s during that like satanic panic period uh-huh. where people were freaked out if their kids played Dungeons and Dragons yeah. they'd be like, sacrificing animals and you know joining <laughs> cults and stuff yeah. but Hero Quest because you play as a hero, his parents didn't mind that. So that was his D&D outlet. I think you actually kind of had an experience like that, Karen. I
1: had a lot of serious conversations with my dad just explaining, this is basically just a board game, and we're the good guys, and we're killing all the bad guys, so it's all right. Yeah, we're not
0: summoning demons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Once he left the house, he went to Pensacola Christian College in Florida, and he said that at that point he really got into the collectible card game craze, but he didn't jump... To magic the Gather and he actually went to a game called marvel overpower which he actually still talks about to this day i've never played overpower i don't play ccgs at all because i mean i know how i am and look around <laughs> so I, I don't trust myself to even go down that road yeah. but that was one that he really got hooked on okay. for a while he also met sam healy this way who was for a long time a member of the dice tower through the star wars collectible card game okay After college, he and his wife, Laura, moved to Korea as missionaries, with Sam Healy, actually, and they served as teachers in Korea for many years. In Korea, they met a guy named Joe Stedman, who started playing games with them, more traditional hobby games. He said at this time, he discovered Board Game Geek, started going through the top 100, and just started playing these games. and That's where he started to develop his love of the more, what we would consider, hobby board games. Mm -hmm. Things like Puerto Rico and stuff like that. And he said at the time he, they mostly did it just to get their wives involved in playing board games because okay. they didn't want to play CCGs or Warhammer or things like that. His first written review, any guesses what it might be? It's actually a take on a immensely popular gateway game. The most popular game. Is probably. it on Catan? Yes, but a variant of Catan. Christian board game reviewer. The Settlers of Canaan. <laughs>
1: i don't think i realized that this variant exists yes
0: there is a settlers of canaan it was his first written review in august the 10th of 2002 from that point he jumped into several written reviews got a bit of notoriety he established a relationship with board game publisher days of wonder which at that time was very small and they gave him a game to review not a big deal just a game called ticket to ride <laughs> but the trick was is because he established that relationship with them, he got it before anybody else. Oh wow. And that's kind of like catapulted him into the mainstream is because he was the guy that first reviewed Ticket to Ride. Wow. Yeah. And then the last point for this episode, he said around this time he started listening to a podcast called Geek Speak, hosted by Dirk Solko and Scott Alden. Scott Alden is the CEO of Board Game Geek. And okay. he started thinking this podcast thing is kind of cool. You know, he's like, I think I could do this. He said that he and Joe Stedman were sitting in their church, working with their audio video equipment. We're like, we got all this audio video stuff here. Why don't we start a podcast? So their podcast was initially called the Tom and Joe Show in episode one, which they then changed to Panzers and Pieces. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the reason for this is that Tom and Joe they had an interesting podcast, and in that Joe Stedman was more of a war gamer. Okay. Where. Tom had more of an interest in the games that we review, Uh I guess. And so I will say, I've listened to their old podcasts from back in the day, and I enjoy their banter because they often disagree with each other. And I think that's a strength of a podcast is when there's a lot of discussion and dialogue. And so they would often disagree about what constitutes a good game because Joe just wanted to play war games and Tom enjoyed Euro-style board games. After that, they transitioned to the Dice Tower in Episode 3, and that has stuck ever since. And that's where I will stop for now because we're actually going to do another episode on Tom Vassell. There are three more games that I feel like are worthy of review that I would consider infamous reviews from him that we'll review at another time and we'll finish the story at that point because I feel like this could just You've go on. You've been long talking for long enough. enough. I've nice. been talking for long enough. Exactly. So. The people are ready for reviews.
1: I, ever since you said that their original name for their show is Tom and Joe, and that it has something to do with war games, I'm wondering if they meant it to be Tom and Joe. What is all American it? heroes? What like GI Joe? <laughs> <laughs> Tom, and Joe.
2: I was I was lost too, Chris. I, I <laughs> did
1: not get what I you can, were saying. You can cut that out. But that's what's been going through my head. This oh, is it's what happens staying when now. I'll
0: it. <laughs> all right. Well, that's it for the banter, a little bit about Tom, and as I mentioned, we're going to get into the reviews here, starting with Hawaii. All right. Let's do it. All right.
1: Welcome to the resplendent Hawaiian Islands, where the fishermen fish, the surfers surf, the dancers dance all as beautiful in their own way as the tropical fruits that grow from and decorate the breathtaking landscape as one of the chieftains of this paradise island you are responsible for the cultivation and prosperity of your own villages daily you must ask yourselves how you might best serve your village should you irrigate for increased fruit cultivation promote the talents of your village's finest surfers and dancers invest in your fishermen Train kahunas? Who among you will strike the balance required to become the chieftain that history remembers?
0: Nice. That's a long story for this game. <laughs> yeah. What were you going for there? Book your Hawaiian vacation today. <laughs> That's what I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Travel agent?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice.
2: Five days, four nights. <laughs> Combinations for two.
0: Huh. Hawaii. Published in 2011 by Z-Man Games, Rio Grande Games, and Hans & Gluck. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 837. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. You know how we don't like to do that. We had to make an exception this time. That's right. Pretty highly rated, but this game is way out of print and not often talked about these days, so I think definitely uh, worthy. For sure. For sure. Definitely worthy of the podcast. Designer of this game is Greg Daigle i will point out that this is his only published design okay more on that later let's stick that away we're we'll yeah. gonna talk about on that yeah interesting so i haven't done a how did we hear about it in a while because i started to learn that i was just <laughs> always saying i heard about this on the dice tower
1: <laughs> uh, did you hear about this one on the but dice i did tower? hear about
0: this one on the dice tower <laughs> This was another one on Ryan Metzler's top 100 games of all time list from 2013. But what's interesting about this particular entry and what intrigued me about it when I initially heard about it, because I never heard of the game Hawaii before, is he said something along the lines of, well, I know Tom threw this one in the trash, but I'm going to pull it back out and talk about it because I think it's a Mm. great game. I was like, take it out of the trash. What is he talking about? Why would he say that? And so I looked up Tom's review on Hawaii and Hawaii actually has a two part review (laughs) on the Dice Tower. And the first video is about a minute and a half long and all that it consists of is him yelling for one of his kids to come in his game room and he gives them the game and then they hand it off to each other sequentially throwing it in multiple waste baskets, <laughs> And it finally ended up in the recycling bin that the garbage truck comes and picks up. Okay, so that's why he said that. Yeah. So I guess that's why I would consider it to be somewhat of an infamous review because he mm-hmm. trashed it, so to speak. <laughs> all right, brief rule summary for Hawaii. Hawaii is an action selection game where the players are guiding their own chieftain pawn throughout the island, executing actions which add to their own personal villages in an attempt to maximize their victory points. As I alluded to above, there are two boards in Hawaii, a central shared island board, and then each player has their own personal board where they will construct up to five individual villages. The common board is randomly populated with ten different action spaces, and each action can be performed anywhere from 1 to 3 times each round, depending on the space and the setup. Each round, each action will be randomly populated with 1 to 3 shell tiles numbered anywhere from 2 to 6, indicating the cost associated with taking that action. If a player takes an action, they pick up one of the available numbered shells, pay that corresponding number of shells from their own personal supply to the bank, and then perform that action. Before we talk about individual actions, it's important to understand that action selection is dictated by the movement of each player's own chieftain pawn throughout the island. Each player's chieftain begins each round on the beach, which is on one side of the board, basically. And then the players will pay feet to move their chieftain throughout the island onto the different adjacent action spaces to perform said actions. Each space moved costs one foot in movement. Feeples? Feeples. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're confused, think of... Yokohama, I think, would be a good... Well, that's a good analogy. That's a good analogy, how you're moving your piece from adjacent tile to adjacent tile, and for each tile you move, you're paying a foot token, basically. except that
2: you always start in one particular side of the board. Correct. Right?
0: Yeah. In addition to feet and shells, players can also gain fruit by taking certain actions, which can act as either shells or feet when performing actions, so this is a flexible resource. So as I mentioned, there are 10 different actions, and they do a variety of different things, such as allow you to purchase huts that will give you increased shell and or foot production at the end of each round, gain fruit, obtain god tiles that give you certain in-game scoring benefits, and so on. I'm not going to go into all the details of the actions because it would just go on too long. However, it is extremely important to understand that every action taken in the game has an A side and a B side. The A side is an action token's basic benefit, however... Players do have the choice of paying double the cost of the action to flip the tile over to its B-side, which is basically an upgraded, better, more efficient version of that action. So you may be asking yourself, why wouldn't you always choose the B-side actions? Well, it's important to note that at the end of each round, everybody will sum the total of all of the action tokens that they took over the course of a round and compare that to an end-of-round target number. If their sum equals or exceeds this number, they will be eligible to obtain some pretty significant end-of-round scoring benefits. It's important to note that these end-of-round target numbers get higher and higher as the game goes on, and the number of shells and feet you are given gradually decreases over the course of the game, underscoring the importance of building an economy with your huts that you acquire through actions. Most points wins the game. That's generally how you play Hawaii. That was pretty thorough, but yet left out a ton. Yeah. <laughs> very, very generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you know in this show, we don't like to give super long rules explanations, and that was a little longer than I like to give, but I feel like I just kind of had to. There's a lot there's, going on. There's a lot going on in this game. This game is solidly middleweight, maybe just a shade above middleweight, I would say. So for our discussion question to kick off our, our thoughts on the game, I thought it would be appropriate for us to consider Tom's reviews of these three games and take points that really stuck out to us in his review of the game and discuss them and whether we agree with him or disagree with them.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Sounds fair.
0: So for this particular game, one thing that he mentioned over and over again when he reviewed Hawaii is how he felt like the game felt like a spreadsheet to him. It's the soulless dry game with a bunch of numbers and you're trying to optimize your engine and find these little efficiencies and you're just filling in the numbers of your spreadsheet to generate the best score possible and to him that felt very unfulfilling. So my question to you would be, did you feel like this game was a spreadsheet game, which you would consider a spreadsheet game, and do you share his thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I have to say I've played games that I feel like are spreadsheet games. We've talked about a few on the show. Yes, we
0: have. Not long ago.
2: And I, I don't know that I see that in this game. Mm-hmm. There are definitely a lot of numbers, but even that, compared to some other games, you're not doing a lot of math and number crunching in this game. Yeah, you're looking at your tableau, your different villages, and trying to figure out, okay, these multipliers and these different tiles are worth X. But that's any game, right? Right, it's that, any that game. has points. Yep. I'm trying to figure out what he meant by that. Right. Other than that you're doing a lot of math, because I don't think there is a lot of math in this game. So maybe he just felt like it was dry and the different avenues that you had to score points were not interesting enough to hold his attention. Right. And I could see that maybe. I think there are a lot of very different ways of scoring points in this game. Right. Speaking my language Um, right now. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say about it.
1: My first thought is definitely not this feels like a spreadsheet. And I think it's about as far from, quote, merely filling in a spreadsheet as you can get. Because I've seen very different tableaus at the end of this game from different players. Some of whom won the games. Some of whom won the game and then the next time played it completely differently and did just as well. Yep. It varies a lot and it depends on the decisions that you make throughout the game. To me, f- filling in a spreadsheet just feels bland and there's no thought associated with mere number crunching, for example. But there's a lot of thought that goes, I think, into the decisions that you make and the paths that you choose yeah. to go down. And whether you choose certain paths at all or whether just because of the circumstances of the game, it ever makes sense to go down certain paths. Right. That's not spreadsheety to me, right? Yeah. There's, there's a replay value factor to this game that I'm sure we'll get into that says anything but bland yeah. about it.
0: So to me, spreadsheet implies that there aren't really any choices going on that you can get your calculator out and you can just math it out and you know what the best move is. So we talked about this in Upon a Salty Ocean, which I think is what you were talking about, Jason. Yeah. In the final round of Upon a Salty Ocean, you can literally math out, and we had people doing this, getting their calculators out <laughs> and figuring out, well, I shouldn't do this because that won't net me points, this will net me points, so I'll do this, and they just figured out what was the best move for them.
2: So if the fish price is going to be this, then crunch, 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 crunch. Exactly. I win the game. That is If it's spreadsheet. this, then crunch, 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 I don't win the game, so I know yeah. which direction to go.
0: There are far too many choices in this game for that to be spreadsheet. There are so many choices, and that's what you hit on, is this game has multiple paths to victory. I can think of six off the top of my head right now, and they're probably far more than that, and that's way more than most games. Yeah. I think what Tom meant when he spread spreadsheet is I think maybe he meant point salad. But again, I don't consider point salad and spreadsheet to be the same thing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And you talked about those avenues to victory. The thing that really takes this game up a notch, in my opinion, is the variable setup, oh, which yeah. in a lot of games, and we talked about this in the past before too, right? And a lot of games, that variable setup is just window dressing. It, it, does, it doesn't do anything. a whole lot in this yeah. game. I wouldn't say it's the ultimate example of variability, But it does change the game a good bit. It switches it up a lot. Because you're always starting on one side of the board, moving away from the beach, which actions end up randomly distributed closer to the beach greatly changes what strategies make the most sense throughout the game. Because if boats are really close to the beach, then it's really cheap to get boats. And maybe that's a good strategy to go for. Or maybe you go for something that's farther away because less people are going to go after it, right? What
0: are the costs of the actions associated on each spot? Because they change around the game. Yeah. And in the early rounds. Yep. So many things to think about in this game. Where are you in turn order? Yeah you might have an idea of I'm going to try to do this. And then somebody in front of you starts to go down a path and you're like, I've got to redirect. You can't help it. Yeah. Yeah, You got to choose something else to do with your feet. (laughs) Another thing that I really liked as an interesting choice was this idea of the A sides and the B sides. I think we have to talk about this because this is just so good. I think. So the A sides, again, like I mentioned, they're all helpful. They're all good. But the B side it's just so much more helpful. It's usually
2: double the benefit.
0: Yes, yes. Makes you more efficient, makes you better. But the way that Greg Daigle designed this was so brilliant and that he dangles this end-of-round scoring bonus, which is a huge number of points. Okay, It's not a small number. If you can win it, I mean, it can be up to 15 points. That's not trivial. Yeah. And so you're constantly debating with yourself, should I double this and take the B-side? Because if I didn't make it clear from the rules, if I take an action that costs me three, and I do the B-side, it costs me six, but I still only get three points towards that end round target number. Yeah. And so if I constantly take B-sides, I'm missing out on a lot of end round points likely. Yeah. Right? Right. What did you guys think about that as a mechanism?
1: Yeah, it introduces a a level of tension to the game (laughs) that we like to talk about because you only have a certain amount of income every round, shells or fruit or whatever to spend. If you spend more money by doubling it, you're still only getting one tile in your tableau rather than spending maybe more of that money on a different on tile, which actions. extends those lines out. Yeah, a lot of the scoring to... is
2: dependent on
0: the number of tiles you have in your exactly.
1: tableau. Exactly. But if you do that, you're not getting the compact benefits. But I
0: really want two shells at the end of each round instead of one because exactly. i get my economy going So there's
1: that internal dialogue happening. Trying to figure out what like which direction should struggle. I go. Yeah. <laughs> it's agonizing. Yeah. For in sure. the best
0: way possible.
2: Yeah. Do you focus on that engine building mechanic or do you go for those end of round points? Yes. And the great thing is that just emphasizes how brilliant this mechanic is is that we saw people win by focusing on end of round points. Yep. And we saw people win. I think I won the last game that we played. And I didn't try for the lot. end round points at all. Yep. I completely ignored it the whole game and was able to win that way as well. So. Yep.
0: Two totally viable strategies. I'm really glad you mentioned the struggle between building an economy versus scoring points because there are so many ways to score points in this game. Like I said, it's point salad. Mm -hmm. But if you go all in on points and you don't focus on getting some huts that give you shells or that give you feet, you'll find yourself very resource poor at the end of the game and kind of paralyzed. But if you go too heavy on that because you're worried about running out of resources, you're not scoring points, right? Yeah. So you're constantly struggling. Do I just try to give myself resources? Do I try to give myself points? But what's even great about that is the fruit resource. That's kind of like a wild resource, but there are tiles that give you points for having fruit resources, (laughs) right? Again, more ways to win, more paths to victory, more things to think about. There are just so many things to consider in this game. Yeah.
2: So are we saying that we just love a point salad game? Or are we saying that this has something more than what people typically label as a point salad?
0: I think I tend to like point salads. I like Feld games. And I would say that this game probably does the point salad formula better than any game that I've ever played. I was going to say. That's a big statement because I've played a lot of Felds. And no offense to Stefan Feld. I think he's great. But man, Greg Daigle just nailed it. On this one, I think.
1: Yeah, you guys definitely have, in general, a wider breadth of games that you're familiar with and stuff. And I think y'all tend to like the point salad games more than I do. We've reviewed some of them uh, on this show that I haven't reviewed as favorably because I had a hard time with keeping up with everything. But I feel like Hawaii did a great job with the genre and placing you into points of tension between that in-game scoring and end-game scoring right are you planning to go for the end of game points or not i liked navigating that i liked figuring out how can i score points right now it was a great balance for me
2: yeah i think the point salad designation kind of gets a bad rap i agree obviously the people who like it and who don't i think we gravitate more towards liking that style of game like we've said but there is a, a range within that, right? I think it gets a bad rap because sometimes those games feel like we'll just do whatever and you're going to score points. I think there are elements of that to this game, but Certainly. you definitely have to have a plan. Yes, You can't just go out and be like, well, I'm just going to take whatever's out there and add up all my points and because I score points for everything and I'm going to win, right? You have to be strategic because each of those actions that you're doing costs a variable amount and if you're not being efficient in picking up those things then from a cost perspective, you're going to lose. But if you just always go for the cheapest thing and you are just doing random things because they were cheap, you're going to lose. So you have to find that balance between doing what's efficient from a money perspective and also what's efficient from a strategy perspective and like a harmonizing actions thing.
0: There's so many things you can do and you can't do it all. Right. You have to find paths. All right, cons. (laughs) Anybody have any cons?
2: Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of cons that I was able to pull out for this one, honestly.
0: Nor do I. (laughs) No, that's a bit of a clue. I will say one thing that has been mentioned by people, including Tom, is that the setup between rounds is a little fiddly. You're pulling tokens from a bag, you're putting them down, you have to do a little bit of basic math to make sure that the tokens can go down. My rebuttal to that would be, with how fiddly and complicated games are now, if that bothers you, you're just reaching, <laughs> I think, because games are so insanely fiddly now and yeah. complicated and convoluted that I think the minor inconvenience between rounds in Hawaii of figuring out, okay, nine plus three is 12. I can put this token down here and it's viable is not a big deal.
1: Okay. So All are right. we ready to move on to final thoughts then? I think so. Jason, get us going.
0: You make me start, huh?
2: Yep. <laughs> yeah, this is a fantastic game. <laughs> I wrote down worker placement game, but I guess action, selection, worker placement. Yeah. It's a blend. A little blend. There are so many different angles and paths to explore. You're literally creating paths on the board. <laughs> so, <laughs> I,
0: eh, Never mind. <laughs> Scratch that. Was that your attempt to be funny?
2: Yeah, I didn't have that written down. So <laughs> Stick to the script. <laughs> There's so many different angles to explore trade-offs that you have to probe into throughout the game everything has a cost associated with it you can go heavy on boats but you're sacrificing something else i love that in games despite you not explaining all the rules there's not a ton of rules overhead to this game no yeah it's not the simplest game in the world but i feel like this would be accessible to most people it's not overwhelmingly complicated just
0: gotta learn what the action spots do
2: right i loved the tableau building piece of it the action selection piece, the dual economy of the shells and the feet. I had a hard time finding things that I didn't like about this game. Right. I had a hard time figuring out what number I was going to put on it, though, honestly. It's definitely a 5 for me. Mm-hmm. I was tempted to put a 6 on it. I think I'm going to land on 5 Okay. with the possibility of it going to 6 over time. Mm-hmm. But it's a solid 5. Nice. Book.
0: Well, b- Before a camera goes, just in the off chance... That maybe Tom is listening to this review or somebody new. We haven't gone over a grading skill in a while. Maybe we should oh, yeah. do that real yeah, quick. that's good Just idea. to make sure that people understand, what does a 5 mean? Yeah. Is that 5 out of 10? Sure. Good it's point. not. It's 5 out of 6. We grade on a 6-point scale on Hidden Gems, with 1 being the lowest, 6 being the highest. So if we give a game a 1, that means that we think the game is bad, and we think it's bad because we think that there is something mechanically wrong with the game. There's a design flaw that makes the game bad or unplayable. 2... Nothing wrong with the game mechanically. We just don't like the game. We think it stinks. We don't enjoy it. We don't want to play it. Three is what we call the meh game. It's just okay. It's not bad, but we're not really excited to play it again. If people really wanted to, we might go along with it, but it's not something we desire. Four, this is where we start getting into the good stuff. We like the game. We think it's solid. We really enjoyed it. We wouldn't turn down a play of it. Five, excellent, above average. Really like the game quite a bit. Looking forward to playing it more. And then a six is fantastic. Really like the game. One of our favorite games. Really enjoy it. All right, Cameron.
1: All right, there we go. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thinking about this game in terms of our history of what happens to games that get better with repeated plays... I think Hawaii falls into that category for me, for sure. Any game that doesn't demand that I understand the dominant strategy or know about special cards or tokens to try to get, but rather lets me observe the lay of the land and make good decisions and form my strategy on the fly is bound to get good marks for me. I'm going to go with a four for Hawaii. I think it's good. Like I said, I think it could get better as we continue to play it. I certainly wouldn't turn down a play of it. So four for me. So for me,
0: as you know, if you've been a longtime listener of the podcast, you know I use the phrase multiple paths to victory a lot (laughs) because I love that. That's what I want, right? I want decisions. I want decision points. I don't want to know what I'm doing on my turn. I want to be Mm -hmm. struggling between trying to decide, do I do this or this? This game does that better than any game I have ever played in my life. And I've been playing games since 2005, okay? At the risk of sounding hyperbolic... (laughs) It just is. I said earlier in the review, I can think of six different ways you can do it. I was sitting here thinking, while y'all were talking, I probably should have been (laughs) listening to you. I actually thought of eight. Okay. okay? There are just so many ways to win this game. But what's cool about it, like you were alluding to, Cameron, is I can't go into game night thinking, okay, tonight I'm going to try this. You just can't do that and that's a sign of a good game if you think that about a game you should think carefully about how good that game is you shouldn't really ever be able to go in a game and think i'm going to do this strategy tonight. the board state of the setup and your position and turn order in the first round should dictate your strategy not what you think you're going to do before you walk into the doors mm-hmm. of a game night
1: mm-hmm. yep
0: this game nails that i think it's a perfect mix <laughs> of tactic and strategy i love the game so clearly, given the game is six, I think it's great.
1: There it is. How, nice. how
0: can I not? I said it's the best multiple pass of victory game I've ever played. I'm obsessed with the game. I love. It. I played it numerous times. We're getting Chris a golden shelf uh, <laughs> where he can
1: put all the sixes. That's right.
0: Hey man, listen. I don't have that as many as people think. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have got me freaked out about this, but I went back and looked, and my bell curve is intact, okay? Right, Let's just right. put it that way. <laughs> I give out the ones more than anybody. But at any rate, if you're interested in trying to pick up Hawaii, I have a bit of bad news here, unfortunately, and it's a shame, because the game's great. There are copies available on Noble Knight, our sponsors at Noble Knight, but they're only German language, which is okay, because it is language independent. You just have to download the rules on BGG, so you can get it there. There are two copies on BGG Marketplace right now, but they're a little pricey also on ebay a little pricey but you can play this game on yukata online that's right and on board game arena so if you want to see if you like it you should try it out on there you can get a feel if you want to cough up the cash to pay for this thing so you can try it there
2: cool so you said at the beginning of the review that you had more thoughts on the fact that this was the only design by this designer Yes. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts were.
0: So this is a little tough. So I actually did a little bit of digging on BGG because I was curious as to why this guy only has one published design because I think this game is great. So apparently after the review on Hawaii came out, he took it a little bit personal. I think it upset him a little bit. Apparently people in his game group that know him say that he has other designs that are apparently really great games, but I think the dejection that he felt from his game getting shredded the way that it did just put a bad taste in his mouth Jeez. which is unfortunate i don't know if greg daigle will ever listen to our review but if he does i would encourage him hey man just do your thing you know like, there's a lot
1: of money out there from a lot of publishers that you're, you're are willing you're, to put money down on a great game design yeah. like
0: why not go for it you're a great designer <clears throat> and if you've got a design you should go for it and, and i say this sympathetically the board game industry is harsh reviewers are going to be hard on you and kind of have to have a little bit of a thick skin i mean we shred games sometimes yeah we do so you know you have to be able to take that but i i say that to encourage you not to discourage you just to be like hey just brush it off tom's a great reviewer but he's not the only word right and we think it's great yeah yeah
2: we'd love to see more designs by this guy oh heck yeah yeah cool well those are our thoughts on hawaii nice
1: You know, there's money in chocolate, but it doesn't just grow on trees. You need to control the links in production chain to get your cut out of the cash by making sure the cacao flows through your business instead of your competitors. Sometimes you need to get your customers and suppliers to help yourself. If you're wily like me, you can figure out a way for your competitors to do the work for you. Create monopolies, Cut off the supply chain, disrupt other players, finely hone plans, do whatever it takes, become King Chocolate.
2: <laughs> if you can see Cameron doing like the little <laughs> head, the head bobble, the whole way through that.
0: It would- It would just add so much. It reminded me a little bit of Terra Nova. (laughs) A little bit. Different accent, but similar mannerisms. Oh man. (laughs) Uh, So
1: curious like a cat. (laughs) The moon
2: were made out of green (laughs) juice. Exactly. All right, King Chocolate. Published in twenty fifteen by Mayfair Games. Designed by Stefan Alexander and ranked one thousand six hundred and eighty nine. No.
1: you sure yeah. about that?
2: No. <laughs> Is that incorrect? You better it double did, check that, It did friend. seem fairly low.
1: You said 1,689? Yeah. Yeah, that seems lower than I would have expected. It
2: did seem oddly low.
1: Maybe B- that was like BGG. the family games. 4,909. Ah, it seems more like it. Yeah.
2: Currently right. ranked on BGG 4,909. There you go. Much better. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you're going to have to...
1: Oh, I'm leaving all that in. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, fine. We'll put the Jeopardy tune in the background. Exactly.
2: (laughs) All right. I look up the wrong number every once in a while, guys. Chris, do you want to give a a little rundown on where you came across this game?
0: Yeah, yeah. So this is Jason's game, but the reason we reviewed it is this game, when it first came out, it had a lot of buzz around it. I remember people talked about, like, hey have you heard about king chocolate it was like the secret exciting thing Mm. king chocolate it's just catchy right and i think people were super excited about it and tom was excited about it i recall and then tom and jason levine reviewed it together and they just absolutely dogged this game tom gave it a three out of ten jason gave it a two out of ten which he's usually more generous than tom is and while this game is fairly low ranked on BGG 4,909, there is a contingent of gamers out there who think this game is pretty good. Okay. It's got like a cult following. People think that it's a decent game and deserves a chance, and it just never got one. So that's why we're reviewing it. Cool. All right. So rule summary for King Chocolate. I'm
2: actually probably going to go through most of the rules in this summary, unlike Hawaii, because there aren't a lot of rules to it. In this game, players will be working on a shared tableau of hex tiles in order to move cacao through the six production stages of making chocolate, receiving money each time product is moved from one stage to another. The goal of the game is to have the most money at the end of the game. The game begins with a ring of hexes being placed at the center of the table, each hex representing one of the six stages of refining cacao into chocolate. Each hex also has one or two circles on it where brown wooden cubes can be placed, representing the product as it moves through the various stages of the pipeline. Each player at the start of the game receives four meeples of their player color and three tiles composed of two hexes each, sort of like dominoes, hexominoes. On a player's turn, they must place a tile in such a way that it is adjacent to the existing tableau of tiles on at least one side. Then the player has the opportunity to spend three action points across four possible actions. The first action that a player can choose is to draw a new tile. This costs one action point. They can choose any of four tiles that are available in a display face-up, or they can choose a face-down tile from the pile. The next action is placing a worker and producing. This costs two action points. A player will place one of their meeples onto any unoccupied group of hexes. So that is adjacent hexes, which are all the same production stage, which are all colored the same color. A group can be of any size, even a single hex. And when doing this, every circle space on each hex in that group receives a wooden cube. This is one way that product comes onto the board. The next action is moving a worker for one action point. A player can move a worker of their color from one group of hexes to another unoccupied group on the board. In this case, no new cubes are added to the board. And the final action is production, for one action point. To produce, a player is going to move cubes from one group to another group, which has to be the next highest production stage. So moving from level two, which is beans, to level three, which is roast. The player can move as many or as few cubes as they'd like, just as long as there's enough space in the destination group to hold all of those cubes. Also note that a player does not have to have a meeple of their color in either the source or destination group. However, whichever player does have a meeple on that group of hexes that the cubes are being moved from will receive a dollar per cube that is moved. And if no player has a meeple on those hexes, the money goes to the player doing the moving. So play will continue like this with each player spending their four action points and placing a tile until there are not enough tiles left in the stack to fill the display. And at that point, whichever player has the most money wins the game. So that is pretty much all of how you play King Chocolate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty straightforward.
2: Yeah. Well, (laughs) rules-wise. Yeah, the rules are very straightforward. (laughs) Trying to grok what exactly you're trying to do in this game and how it all works together quite difficult. (laughs) But one of the things that Tom mentioned, going back to our theme of leading questions here, one of the things that Tom mentioned that he was not a (laughs) fan of in this game was he said it just looks pretty bland. It's not very interesting looking on the table. I was curious, did you guys feel the same way? What did you think about the art, the general look of this game? Yeah. Was it what you expected it to be? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I Yeah, I'll go first on this one. This is not what I expected King Chocolate to be. I thought yeah. at least I was going to have a stoic-looking Euro man with a crown <laughs> looking at me or something like that. This game is really abstract. Yes, for uh, sure. The symbols and the colors are kind of wild, fluorescent in some occasions. Yes. I felt like they could be hard to remember what order they go in. I yeah. kind of feel like it misses the mark.
0: Yeah, it can definitely be an impediment. As we mentioned before and as you just mentioned Cameron King Chocolate is such a catchy name. Yeah. And it's just not at all what you expect. Yeah. As you mentioned the color choice or the color palette is just garish. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. really is it looks, looks like a graffiti like, wall. Yeah, the graffiti are like a really bad shag carpet color from the seventies or something with all these little doo doo cubes all over. You know, it just looks crappy, right? It's terrible.
1: That's true. All the cubes are brown. Yes. It's like it's chocolate. Yeah.
0: It's brown doo doo cubes on neon yellow and green and this phosphorescent red color. It doesn't look great. Not to mention what you're actually doing is probably not going to be exciting to most people. Yeah. If it wasn't clear from the rules, this is a supply chain management game yeah. Yeah. of incentives where you're basically trying to get product to flow through your distribution line right. more than your opponents. Yeah, That's not going to get a lot of people. Okay, Now, that's not to say there might not be good things going on here, but I could definitely see how that could be a hurdle for some people, and I think it was a big obstacle for Tom. Mm. And I think that's fair
1: okay
2: yeah i think when i hear king chocolate i'm thinking oh i'm gonna be doing some sort of euro game type thing where i'm building out a chocolate factory willy wonka style there's gonna be all kinds (laughs) of things going on but i think what you said is accurate right this is a supply chain through and through for sure right it's logistics move things from stage one to stage two to stage three make sure that things are going to my locations so that i profit off of it yep that's it Yep. Now, in terms of the art and the graphic design of this game, I don't mind the color scheme. I like the color scheme, honestly. I think the usability of the tiles, looking at it on the board, it's very difficult to parse what's going on. Yeah, for sure. Because even the numbers on the tiles are in tick marks, and oh, so yeah. right, which are difficult to read <laughs> yes. from a distance. So usability-wise, there are some improvements that could have been made. Color-wise,
0: doesn't bother me. So we'll just go through some of Tom's critiques here. Yeah, okay. I think it's fair and comment on them. So one thing that Tom really had a problem with in this game is he said, you know, I just didn't feel like I could block people in this game or interfere with them because it's a supply chain game. You've got Mm -hmm. a distribution line. And he said, you know, I wanted my cubes to sit on my area and gum things up so people couldn't move through the chain and make money. But the problem was that is, is if you've got chocolate cubes on your spaces, you want to move them get that off junk away, yeah. so that you can make money, right? Yeah. So that the supply chain continues to flow. Mm-hmm. So he just didn't feel like you could interfere or block people. He just felt like it was arbitrary and if whoever got used more than other people would win. Do you agree that there wasn't really any good opportunities for shenanigans or blocking or interfering with people's plans in this game?
2: Yeah, I would say I disagree with that. I think you can block in this game, For but sure. blocking looks different mm-hmm. than what you just described. Yes, in this I game, agree. Which is admittedly difficult to parse when you first pick up the game and try to play it. So I remember vague. we played it the first time. I'm like, what are we even doing right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why do I want to move cubes from here to here? It's going to give Cameron money. But the way you block in this game is by moving stuff through the supply chain. Because remember, you can move cubes that are not even sitting in an area that you own. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you want to move cubes that are in an area that oh, you don't yeah, own. If spots. Cameron's holding 10 chocolate cubes on a two and I own a lot of threes, I'm going to be picking up those cubes and moving them because I want them on my threes, not Chris's threes. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's how you block in this game. You can
0: take matters into your own hands.
2: Exactly.
1: So you're saying there's a way to block by taking away potential points that someone else could have for themselves and making sure that you get those points. I think the other way, I actually remember Chris taking this approach to block. And it's one that requires special opportunities to some degree. When you select your tile, you can pick up, Tiles that you know you can place down in areas that will close off someone else's region, whoever your competition is, for example. Yes, because one of the incentives that you have in this game is to essentially be the dominant route for a particular number. You want
0: the bottleneck to run
1: through you exactly. So, if you can create a situation where you have the capacity but Jason doesn't, people will use my spot absolutely. Yeah, to me. This game is more a tile-laying game
0: than anything. And I didn't Mm -hmm. appreciate that in the first two plays of this game. Mm -hmm. It's opaque. But if you can see areas in the supply chain where, let's say I'm in step six, and I've got a pretty strong hold on six, and Cameron's trying to compete with me for that, if I can lay my tiles in such a way that does not allow him to grow his six to any significant size, I am now offensively hindering him, and I am now forcing people at the table to go through me. Yep, Because I hindered him directly by my tile placement. That's blocking. That's offensive, right? And so I think that that's... is offensive. I was offended several times. (laughs) Not to mention, if somebody's got a monopoly in the group, you can lay a tile to maybe help somebody else out Mm -hmm. and grow their area to help them compete with that other person so that they don't have a monopoly on an area, right? There are things you can do in this game to block people, I think, for sure. Yeah. Another thing that he mentioned was the tile draw. This seemed to be the thing that he got the most upset about, which I found was interesting. It's such a small part of the game. Okay. Although, I think I can see what he's saying, but he said drawing a tile costs an action point. That seems like such a waste to spend an action point to draw a tile. That should just be part of my turn. At the end of my turn, I take a tile. What do you guys think about that
1: part of the game?
0: Choosing to take tiles as part of your action. Do you agree with him there? Do you see what he's saying?
1: Yeah, I I think I understand his gripe, and I understand that that can cause a player to feel tension of, oh, I shouldn't have to do this. The thing is that you start out with more than one tile at the beginning of the game, and so drawing tiles becomes a matter of timing, right?
2: Yeah, it puts a pressure on you because I think I mentioned in the rules, if you ever start your turn and you have no tile to place, you pretty much forfeiting all of your action points right. and you just draw two tiles which even that is inefficient because if you spent all three of your action points you could draw three tiles yeah. in a single turn and so it does become like you said Cameron that timing thing of when do I need to sprint forward and use all of my mm-hmm. action points on actions on the board to make moves that need to happen now yeah and perhaps my tile supply starts to dwindle right Versus, well, I have a little bit of time right now, so I should grab a couple extra tiles so that I can build up that reserve. So
0: I can save those action points for later. And jump forward some other time. Without it,
1: it would would lack that decision point.
0: Yeah, that was my finding too. I found that early in the game, I tried to hoard tiles Mm -hmm. so that I didn't have to spend action points on tiles later in the game when the blobs, the areas, became so big that I wanted to spend action points to produce and score points rather than get tiles, right? Mm -hmm. So you can kind of stockpile tiles. Not to mention, having the option to buy a tile more than once can also help you monopolize a step in the chain, right? If I'm trying to right. control six and two tiles come out that have six on them, if I buy them both, nobody can play six but me, right? right? So I think having that as an action is a good thing, right? It, right. it gives you control, mm-hmm. right? Which I think is good.
2: Yeah, agreed.
0: I think the last thing we have to talk about before we move into final thoughts which is a potential con that Tom mentioned and many other people, actually. I read a lot of reviews on this game because I was curious mm-hmm. about what people thought about in the community. Curious like a cat. Curious like, hey! <laughs> a lot of people were talking about king-making in this game. Right. Like if it's It your is called king-chocolate. King-chocolate, <laughs> king-making and king-chocolate. If you're sitting on steps three of the process and you have cubes and Cameron has a presence on four and Jason has a presence on four... I potentially could decide who gets those cubes so that they can later send them out for points. And then that could be perceived as king making. Yeah. What do you guys think about that?
1: I definitely felt like there is this other element that can develop in the course of a game of back scratching. Of, hey, I moved them on to your yeah. three. So you'll move them on to my four, right? Wait, An wait, element nudge, of negotiation. Nudge. Here's a cocktail. I'll pay for your dinner.
0: <laughs> yeah. And if you put yourself in a situation to say, hey, I have cubes on one, I'll, Feed them into your two if you'll feed your fives into my six. What's wrong with that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's like, just good play, right? They're not choosing you because they like you better than the other person. To. You're incentivizing yeah. them to choose you, right? right? So I think that that's totally reasonable. And right? if that
2: person is playing well, then they're playing to win, right? Not playing to king make. So they right. should be trying to feed stuff regardless of an alliance or negotiation or whatever. Yeah. They should be trying to feed those cubes to whoever they think is further back in point scoring, right?
0: Or somebody could just be like, you know what? Cameron pissed me off today. I'm going to yeah. give my cubes to Jason so he can win. That could happen. But I think in most cases, people are usually trying to just do as well as possible. Yeah. And usually they'll make the move that works best for them. Yeah, Or to try to pull back the leader. And that's just a part of this game. Yeah. I don't think you can fault people for that. I, think the I don't other, think it's a problem with the design.
1: Yeah, I think the other thing that, that is just a reality in this game is, if I'm buddies with Jason, but Jason can only handle two-thirds of the cubes that I need to move, and you can handle all of them, It's not really a conversation. I'm going to do the thing that's more efficient and move on, right? That's not king making. That's you already doing a better job at the game. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
2: So moving into final thoughts, then Cameron, why don't you kick us off?
1: All right. Sure. So this is definitely a weird one. (laughs) Uh, This is the unusual category for sure. For sure. And I will say, despite that, I did enjoy the puzzle of trying to figure out where my corner of the market would be and try and outpace any of my competitors to get in on the same number as me. The artwork and the theme are a bit convoluted. It could really be any sequential manufacturing supply chain theme. And I suppose you could say at the least they made an effort not to make everything 63 shades of brown, but it does lose points for theme. All that said, I'd be up for playing King Chocolate again. And I thought the mechanics of creating the area you control were really unique and a fun contest that requires a good deal of strategy to decide which numbers to go for and that decision point of when to move cubes into whose areas. So I'm going to give King Chocolate a 4.
0: Nice. So for me, I'll begin by saying that I could totally understand why somebody would not like this game. Yeah. I could totally understand why Tom did not enjoy this game. Okay, So I'll just start by saying that. The game is ugly as sin. It looks bad. <laughs> yeah. The theme is not exciting. It's opaque as heck. Okay. <laughs> you are not going to understand what you're doing your first play of this. So on Hidden Gems, we try to play every game three times if possible. And we had played this game twice, or at least I had. And I was like, I feel like I need to play King Chocolate again, but I really don't want to. And everybody was like, I don't want to play it again either. <laughs> but thank goodness that we did. Yeah. Because I think once we played it that third time and then going forward the game started to open up for us. And that's why we have this rule. right? Because there are just some games you're not going to get on the first or even the second play. And this is one of those games. This game improved dramatically for me from the second to the third play because I was like, oh, this is what I'm trying to do. It just wasn't clicking, right? So I would say that if you're not scared off by the look of the game and you're not scared off by the dry theme and this kind of supply chain stuff sounds interesting, you should try it. And try it at least twice, at least, maybe even a third play. Because this game went from a bad game, meh, maybe a bad game, to a good game for me. I like this game, actually. I'm also (laughs) going to give it a four. It was fun. It's getting better for me. I'm looking forward to playing it more because I think there's just stuff to figure out here. Mm -hmm. And I like that. So, solid four for me. I like King Chocolate.
2: Cool. Interesting. All right. So, I didn't have as much problem with the theme and the artwork on this game. I actually think it kind of looks nice on the table for what it is being an abstract game. But I agree with you guys a lot on the evolving strategy and the need to play this game multiple times. Mm -hmm. Because you will not understand it the first few times that you play it. No way. What I struggle with now, having played it a few times and having discovered some of those strategies, is that I feel like even now playing the game, I'll get to the end of the game and be like, okay, that was interesting was unique, but I can't really quantify why I ended up with the score that I ended up with. <laughs> like, what did I do well and what did I not do well? And how would I change that? And for me, that takes something away from a game. And I fully admit that that could be because I just haven't explored it deeply enough. We haven't found all the strategies that there are to really understand how to value things on the board. I get that. And if digging deep into that sounds interesting to you, this is a great supply chain management style game, like Chris and Cameron said. And I think that it should be explored, right? I've enjoyed trying to fight through that opaqueness at the beginning of the game and be like, all right, there is a game here. What are we actually trying to do? <laughs> and once we figured that out, we did have a couple good plays of the game. Yeah. But I found myself at the end of the game every time being like, okay, that was a game. I don't know what I did right <laughs> if I did well, and I don't know what I did wrong if I didn't do well. And I would get to the end and be like, I think I did pretty good. And then I would come in last and just have gotten blown out of the water. I think you need right?
1: to buy more dinners, you know? Yeah, maybe you I just need to work ne- on your incentive. Jason. I just didn't negotiate well enough, apparently. Slide so, a cool, crisp $100 bill underneath the table. Right. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's possible. But for me... That took what could have been a four in my book and dropped it down to a three for me. Not because I think this is a bad game or not because I don't think that I could see people thinking that it's worthy of being considered a good game. Because I think that it has merit in that. I think there are things to explore here. And if you are very supply chain economically minded, you're going to love Please this. Get worse
1: if, the if, federal if, if, if you
0: like shared incentives... We've talked about six yeah, on here before. It. Dad's on a map, guys, if you're listening to this. This is shared incentives through and through. You're going to like this game. James, Sanchez, if you've not played this, anybody that likes those games, check that out.
2: Yeah, for sure. But for me, coming to the end of each game and feeling like, I, I don't really know what just happened. or <laughs> It's all a blur. Or how I would like <laughs> try to improve or do better took away that desire to keep going. After we had figured it out, I'm like, okay, this is what we're trying to do now. Do I want to keep playing it? I can't say that I do. Mm. And so that took it down to a three for me. But if it sounds interesting to you, this is, I think, a great example of this style of game. So definitely check it out.
0: You don't have to be apologetic, man. I wasn't apologizing. <laughs> I never <laughs> said I'm sorry. It sounds like I'm adding man. another game to my growing collection. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it. <laughs> awesome. Well, if you're looking to pick up this game, unfortunately there are no copies on Noble Knight. No copies on BGG either. I'm not going to talk about this at length, but I I should just mention it here because we're going to talk about it in a future show. The BGG store right now is going through some changes, and so the reason why there are no copies on BGG is because (laughs) they're changing the way they are doing things at BoardGameGeek, and they're going through a beta period right now, and things are just kind of weird and messed up. So it's hard to find there, but there are 15 copies on eBay, That's always an option, and they're very reasonably priced, actually. Pretty low in some cases, so you can find it there.
1: All right. Well, those are our thoughts on King Chocolate. Hey! (laughs) Hey! The search for a viable route to India was, since the mid-15th century, the main goal of almost all expeditions made by the Portuguese kingdom. In 1488, Bartolomeu Dias rounded the Cape of Good Hope, and Pedro da Covila found a land route. But it was only in 1498 that Vasco da Gama reached the goal and became the first European to reach. After some stops along the way, the legendary Calicut by the sea, Vasco da Gama accomplished something exceptional, granting Portugal the possibility to achieve monopoly on the spice trade between India and Europe. Epic. (laughs) Uh,
0: (laughs) Vasco da Gama... Published in 2009 by What's Your Game and Rio Grande Games. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 721. Uh oh. Uh oh. Yeah. <laughs> Top 1000. Designer, Paulo Mori. Designer of Libertalia, Fun, Ethnos, Blitzkrieg, Rise of Augustus, to name a few. Pretty prolific, accomplished designer. So, by far, this is Tom Vassel's most infamous <laughs> review. For sure. And somewhat hilariously so, yeah. to be quite honest. So, if you don't know, Tom's initial review of this game, he just totally shredded this game. And there was a bit of an uproar within the board gaming community because they felt like that he reviewed it rather unfairly. And I will say, Tom has gotten much more polished over the years with his reviews and really explaining why he doesn't like a game. This was earlier in the Dice Tower, and I think it was a combination of him maybe just not being as polished at that time, slash he just really hated this game, and it was just kind of ranting. (laughs) (laughs) It just devolved into, this game's not thematic and I hate it, right? And so, based on that outcry, he recorded another video. (laughs) And this was his apology video. And I highly recommend people watching the video, not necessarily because of the review part, which he does re-review it and give it more of a fair shake and explain why he doesn't like the game. But at the end, he has an outtake section where he's showing him recording this apology video (laughs) with his family, where he's apologizing to the members of the Board Game Geek community and saying how sorry he is for all the harm that he's done to Vasco da Gama. (laughs) (laughs) And they can't get through it. And they're laughing hysterically the whole time. And it's hilarious. I highly recommend checking it out if you've never seen it. But it's great. So that's how i knew about this game and as we mentioned this game is in the top 1000 in bgg so a lot of people think this game is pretty good okay yeah i was so, gonna say at
2: least we don't generally have to worry about any of our reviews assuming that enough people actually listen to us but you don't have to worry about our game reviews ever being super controversial because we only ever review games that no one cares about yeah, anything, yeah. So.
1: and also no one leaves comments so <laughs> true <laughs> not yet anyways so
0: yeah that's why we're reviewing this one Alright, so, brief rule summary for Vasco da Gama. Vasco da Gama is an unusual take on the worker placement genre, where the players are assigning priority numbers to their workers in order to compete over certain actions to construct ships and score points. The central mechanism of Vasco da Gama centers around something known as the number zone. (laughs) In the center of the board is a 4x5 array of wooden discs numbered 1 to 20. When a player assigns a worker in Vasco da Gama, They will take one of their wooden workers, choose one of these numbered disks to place on top of their wooden worker, and then assign that unit to one of the available worker placement spaces on the board. Once all of the worker placement is complete, the worker actions will execute in numerical order with number 1 going first all the way through 20 going last, if assigned. So you may be asking yourself, why wouldn't I always just take the lowest value number available? Well, at the start of each round, one of the 20 numbers is randomly assigned the quote-unquote free of charge marker. What this means is any worker placement unit equal to or higher than where the marker is placed is free to perform. If the action disc you select is lower in value than where the free of charge marker is sitting, then you have to pay the difference in coins between where the marker sits and the action selection disc you chose. For example, if the marker is sitting on 12 and you take action disc 8, If you want to perform that action, you'll have to pay four coins to the bank. Now, there is one more interesting little wrinkle to this mechanism that has to be discussed. After all of the worker placement is complete, a tile is flipped over that has a modifier on it. This can be anywhere from minus three up to plus three. This modifier will move the free of charge marker forward or backward that many spaces in the number zone. So if it's on 12 and a plus two gets flipped... The free of charge marker goes from 12 up to 14. Again, this happens after all the worker placement has occurred. Now understanding that, let's briefly discuss the type of actions, but not in a lot of detail. I'll just give you a general idea. There are four different worker placement sections on the board. The first allows you to pay money to acquire ship contracts. Each ship contract requires differing numbers of unique crewmen, and these are required in another section of the board, again through the use of money. Another section of the board allows you to get assistance from up to four different characters who will give you different benefits, such as acquiring a fifth type of unique crew member, the missionary, or acquiring an additional worker for the round. You also have the option to acquire money in this area, which is not trivial. And then finally, the last section of the board allows you to set your boats out to sail, the navigation action. Launch boats will immediately give you some in-game benefit, depending on where you put the boat and victory points equal to the navigational abilities of the boat. And they will continue to likely give you points and or financial benefits for as long as they remain out in the water. The game will continue on in this way for five rounds with most points winning the game at the end of the fifth round. That's generally how you play Vasco da Gama. So as I mentioned in the rule summary, I didn't go over the actions in detail because I think we'll be able to fill in some of those blanks in our discussion. I didn't want it to go too long, but I did talk in great detail about the number zone because that's really the thing. It is the game. It's the game, right? That's the gimmick. I shouldn't call it a gimmick, but that's the mechanism that's at play here. And this was the thing that Tom was most critical of in his review. He felt like that this mechanism of Picking a number and assigning it, and this free of charge marker moving back and forth one or two spots in one direction or the other was just not very exciting, didn't really add a lot to the game, didn't mean much. So, my question to you would be do you agree with that? Do you think it's trivial, or do you think it does matter the way that this mechanism plays out?
2: I have mixed thoughts on this. <laughs> I definitely think it matters, and it creates an interesting puzzle. Because as you're choosing these disks, you're not just choosing execution order. Well, you are, but there's a lot of different variables there. Yeah, you're right. having to figure out, okay, I have four action markers. I have to make sure that I'm choosing these in such a way that they execute in the order that I need them to execute in. right? Because right. all of the different action spaces that you just described are sequential in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You need to do you, one before the you other. Need peop- you need money to get people. You need people to get boats. You need boats to go sail in the water, right? And so you have to be structuring your actions in such a way that you're sequentially executing them properly. You have to be choosing numbers that are ensuring that you go early enough in turn order to get what you actually want in a particular area when you place an action there. And then you're also thinking about this risk aversion factor of I need to make sure that I can actually afford to take all these actions when they execute, depending on where that free-of-charge marker moves. Which you don't know which way it's going to move. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot to think about here. Yeah, yeah. In terms of whether I think it makes the game or not, I have more thoughts on that, but I'm going to let you guys explain your thoughts on it first.
1: Yeah, my take was a little simpler in the sense that the economy in this game is super tight. Yes. It is so hard to get a hold of money. So. If you're asking the question of, is it significant or insignificant that that free number marker can move? Yes. <laughs> it's extremely significant, and it's a point of angst and stomach ache yes. throughout this game. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth, so I'm just
0: going to briefly reiterate, because <laughs> I agree. When Tom described it, he said it in such a way, like, oh, big deal, it moved up too. That is huge in this game. Yeah. Like. It can Sometimes wreck
1: having to pay two can like wreck your whole turn. It can wreck
0: you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, not to mention, <clears throat> this game has a whole lot of um oh crap moments, but that's not necessarily the word that pops yeah. into my head immediately, <laughs> but this is a, a, a family show, you know? <laughs> because this game it happens all the time in this game, and I would say this might be a potential con for some people, is you'll have it all planned out. I'm gonna pay this and get this and I'm gonna buy these workers, and it's all gonna work out perfectly, and that thing moves two to the right and you don't account for that. Yep. And then you go to take that action, you're like, crap. You get that flush in the yeah, face. Yeah. Like, oh no, I've miscalculated because that thing moved, right? Yeah. And if you're not accounting for that or at least have a contingency in place for that to move, it can wreck your turn. And I will tell you, this happened to all of us <laughs> numerous times. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at Bill one game and I could see it hit his face where he was just like, oh no. And it happens to everybody yeah. in this game. It matters, is what I'm saying. It does matter. It matters. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: think the challenge that I have with it mattering, and I think this is a point that Tom made in his review, is that it teaches you to be risk averse Yes. when it comes to that marker moving. And so when I think about this game on the surface, I'm like, oh, that's really cool. You have to decide whether you're going to take the risk and then it's going to cost you more or you, you play it safe and you make sure that you're always going to be able to afford your actions. And while that's true, you can do that. This game very quickly beats you over the head with that and teaches <laughs> you that's dumb. Don't do that. Yeah. Don't be risk-averse. You should always go for one peg below the marker at max, maybe two, maybe three if you're really risking it or you're pretty sure that there's a minus three coming up. Or you've got a lot of money. Or you're just flush with cash, (laughs) but that rarely happens in this game. Yeah. Right? And so because it teaches you to be risk-averse, I feel like we found most rounds... People were picking up the marker where the free-of-charge marker yeah. was to yeah. start with, and then we were going incrementally the next marker up until we ran out of markers, and then people would have to take the low ones because that's all uh, that was left. Right?
1: Not always. I, I, yeah, I sometimes think Sometimes are close dug, to right. You, you dug down a couple yeah. into the below before we started going up. Yeah, above. like somebody would take one below, one above,
0: the second one below, the second one above, the third one below, the third mm-hmm. one above, and then people just started going up from there, and people seemed averse to taking the really low ones because they couldn't afford to pay the difference because it's so expensive and I agree with you and Jason this is one thing you pointed out in one of our plays which I think is a design flaw in the game is there's a rule I didn't explain because I thought we would cover it here is if you pass and don't take your action depending on where that number falls you'll get a number of coins Mm -hmm. the ones that are earlier in turn order the ones through the fives award the least amount of coins only give you a coin if you don't do the action Whereas if you don't do the higher numbered actions, you get like three coins, which can make a difference. It seems to me those should have been switched. I thought about this a little bit. To almost incentivize people to take more risk. And trying to fight over those higher value spots and like, well, if I can't do it, at least I get a good number of coins. But that was never happening in our games.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I I thought about it a little bit after we had that conversation. And I think that it could be because if you could do that, then you could just grab the one and the two, bank six coins, and then use those for your later markers in the same round as cash influx to just... Uh, fund maybe. your efforts for the rest of the yeah, round I mean, but you really- are
0: giving up actions you it are does, yeah. i mean is it you make a good point that could be why he did it that way i'm not saying we fix his game but is it worth it to only perform three actions instead of five if you're bankrolling a better action on those three maybe i don't know Yeah, i don't know maybe it's just a problem with the design in general because it seems like the game wants you to reach for those low wins to make it interesting but it just never seems like a good idea yeah you know what yeah. i mean
1: I think what you're saying is that there could be some balance tweaks that could maybe improve that in terms of making for more opportunities somewhere else in the game to get some cash so that the risk is more incentivized. Right, 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 right. Because you always feel tight.
2: So we talked in our Hawaii review a lot about tactics versus strategy, long-term planning versus taking what's available in a given round. I feel like this is the type of game that sets you up to think that there is a lot of strategic thinking of I'm going to do this this round so that I can do this the next round, and I'm going to set myself up to be able to do this, that, and the other thing in the final round. I'm curious y'all's thoughts on whether you thought that was present in this game, that longer-term strategy, or did it feel much more tactical round-to-round to you? Yeah,
1: that's an interesting question. I think that there are some strategic moves that you have to take at certain points in the game. For example, getting a ship out somewhat early, so that you can start scoring points earlier on in the game. I think if you delay too much on that, that would be a strategic error. Trying to pile up and wait to plop two bigger ships down three rounds into the game. That's not going to serve you well in this game when points are awarded at the end of each round, for example. Yeah. So... I think there are some things like that, but I don't know if you can count on being that strategic about what you get in a given area, mainly because I don't think you can always control that.
0: Well, yeah, you never know what people before you in turn are going to do, but that's any worker placement game, right? You you may disagree with me on this one, Jason, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts, but I, I did feel like there was a good amount of planning in this game, and that's actually the thing I liked about it the most. The number zone we talked about a lot, the way that it fluctuates... I'm still not sure how I feel about it. I don't love the randomness, but the planning in this game I think is quite good. And you really do have to like Jason said make sure you do things in the right order. Yeah. Make sure you don't overpay. It can be tempting to want to pay six dollars to get three different types of crewmen so i can get this boat out but is that long term a good plan Mm -hmm. once i get my boat what row am i going to put it in (laughs) what immediate benefit am i going to get is it safe for me to put in this row so it doesn't get kicked off right which character am i going to influence to get the most benefit right i found myself thinking there were a lot of really good decision Mm -hmm. points in this game again as we mentioned before the thing that bothered me the most about it was how tight it was economically, and a lot of it was out of your control. Mm. But from a planning standpoint, I liked it.
2: Okay. Good to hear.
1: (laughs) 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 All right. So do we have any other thoughts we want to bring up?
0: Yeah, I'll just mention one more thing real quick, because we did experience this in early plays. This got better with time, but I will say this game can run a bit long. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the reason why I think really it runs long is because of that mechanism with the number <clears> zone. <throat> the way that it executes is just a bit clunky. It's like, okay, who's number one? Who's number two? Okay, who's number three now? Number three go. Now know who's number four. It, it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Going through the numerics yeah. of it, it just
1: felt like it was
0: taking... I mean, time.
1: potentially there are 22 actions that, right. that have to be executed throughout each round. and yeah, It's a lot of time. actions,
0: and then going through them Especially if people are yeah. changing
1: their minds or not having exactly a plan for each one of their placements.
2: And board yeah. state is changing after every one of those True. moves, so yeah, it right. might a little bit of fluster your plan. And,
1: I'll have to say, it can drag, so just be aware of that. All right, well, Chris, you want to kick us off on final thoughts then?
0: Sure. So, I know I'm speaking for Tom, but I think maybe the biggest reason why Tom didn't love this game is I would say that this game was a bit ahead of its time. This game came out in 2009. And this game is very much designed in a way that games are now. Mm. Very crunchy, very rulesy, a lot of fiddliness. That doesn't really bother people a lot anymore. To be quite honest, it bothers me a lot now. I feel Mm. like games have gotten a little bit too fiddly, right? And I think this game, at that particular time, was maybe a bit jarring to Tom. I, I don't know that for sure. That's just what I think. Mm-hmm. Because I know the kind of games he likes now, and I just don't see why he had such a response to this one, other than the fact that I think this game was just one of the first games to usher in this new era of heavy, complicated games. It was ahead of its time. For me, I'm just going to say I like this game. There are things about this game that I don't love... The way that the free of charge marker moves, I think, is very significant. And I think you have to react to that tactically. And it can mess up your plans. And you have to account for that. It's not my favorite thing either because it's just very random. You know, mm-hmm. it can really have a significant effect on a round for you. Mm-hmm. But despite all that, I feel like the plan in this game is solid. I enjoyed the plan in this game, trying to make it work, even when the pawn moved in the way I didn't like. Enough so that I felt like I found this game to be enjoyable. So for me, I'm going to give this game a four. I liked the game.
2: All right. So I think I pretty well summed up my final thoughts earlier in the review, but I'm just going to touch back on it. I think this game promises a unique mechanism, that ordering of the action selection. But then the way it actually executes, it makes you so risk averse to actually utilize that mechanism that it kind of negates it in a way. mm mm-hmm. I don't disagree that the rest of the game from a worker placement perspective is interesting. There are decisions there. There's a lot of planning that goes into it. Yeah. It's not a bad game. Yeah. And I can see why people enjoy it. Again, for me though, if I'm thinking worker placement game, I think there are better worker placement games out there that don't also have this sometimes obnoxious central mechanism that doesn't really live up Um, to what it promises to be. Pillars of the Earth, maybe.
0: Mm. I haven't this played game that one. Kind of reminds me of Pillars of the Earth in a way, in the way the numbers are. I don't um, want to does, play that game now. Kind of, <laughs> and it's just much better. So yes, I agree with you. I didn't realize you hadn't played it. Sorry, Jason. I thought you had.
2: <laughs> That's like the hundredth example of games. Like, you've played that, right? You're I'm just like, discrediting
0: no. you daily on this podcast.
2: <laughs> hey, just because you've played every game in the world doesn't mean that. <laughs> and, and I'm he, does, he doesn't
1: look over at me, and I actually have played that game. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah so I think that sums it up for me and while I think there is definitely some meat to this game and some good decisions to be made for me there are better games out there that I would rather play and so it falls in that three category of would I play it if somebody brought it out sure if I think worker placement is it going to be my number one go to that's what I want to play right now probably not Mm -hmm. so gets a three for me
1: Okay. does a three mean if someone wanted to play it that I would play it (laughs) (laughs) reluctantly okay (laughs) "Uh, okay all right final thoughts i know jason and chris have been looking forward to hearing my final thoughts on this game for a while especially after our first play because i'm pretty sure i summarized how i felt at the end of the first play by just saying prison (laughs) (laughs) felt like prison because it was like ah what three and a half four hours
2: yeah i was gonna say to be fair it took us Um, an extremely long amount of time to play that first and i
1: was i was way out of it i mean i was dead last by a dozen or more points there was no way that i was even gonna win it was like why am i still playing actually still to this day i don't know why i did so poorly i just didn't understand the game and subsequent plays went better I tried to come back with fresh eyes to the game and give it another fair shot, right? Like we do on the show. And I, I figured out some stuff. I learned some stuff about how to approach the game. So I think my feelings are not filled with nearly as much vitriol as you guys probably expected. However, as I reflected on this game and reflected on how much I would want to play it again, I guess I don't have nearly as strong opinions about some of the mechanics because I think once you understand them, like, yeah, you can make your way through it. It's interesting. I did enjoy planning and trying to make my overall plan work out. But I do come back to, did I think it was fun? Was I having fun? You know, I look back on an evening in Mm -hmm. which I played Vasco da Gama and go, man, that was fun. Do I want to go tell my wife about it? Because I do. Whenever we play a game, I go home. If I liked it, I'm like, babe, we played this awesome game. It was great. I enjoyed it. We got to try it out. I, I didn't have anything to write home about even after that first play. So with all that in mind, we have a lot of games that we play. We play a lot of similar games to this genre. And I think I would rather just play those. Yeah. So this is just a big, solid meh And honestly, if we're at a board game weekend and for some reason this game makes it into the batch of games we bring along and someone's like, Vasco da Gama, right? I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go play my Illin Pipes. You know, like I'm going to go find a different game to jump in on. I don't know if that makes it a two for me, but I don't like giving out a two if I don't think it actually is a bad game. Sure. Yeah.
0: I think that's fair. I think in all fairness, with all the people that we played this with, I'm probably the only person that liked it. (laughs) Sure. most people didn't like Bill hated this game. I think yeah. this might be Bill's most hated game ever. <laughs> yeah. He was yeah. angry. And yeah. Bill likes everything. <laughs> playing this game. Was that?
2: I said Bill likes everything.
0: <laughs> yeah, Bill all buys right. all your threes. Yeah. He wouldn't buy this one. <laughs> well that was fun oh we gotta talk about where we can find this thing oh yeah um okay oh, yeah, this game's rare it's hen's teeth people okay. <laughs> it's <laughs> real hard to find <laughs> so there are no copies on noble knight our friends sponsors at noble knight no copies on the bgg marketplace there are two copies on ebay and they're super expensive just hard to find this game might get reprinted sometime it's in the top 1000 in bgg mm. but at this point could be hard to track yeah. down yeah well that was fun enjoyed reviewing those games by tom i wasn't trying to be contrarian in this episode i think people know that i love tom i think he's a great reviewer and i wasn't trying to prove a point by reviewing all of these positively i really just enjoy these games yeah it was kind of have, fun
1: i have
2: to end by reaffirming your fanboy status
0: <laughs> exactly <laughs> i don't want him to think i was trying to prove something by going against him to be fair all of these games the reason why we picked them is because people disagree with him. Mm. Like who's actually right type right, of thing. Right, right, right. I think it we honestly
2: all... had a fairly balanced amount that we agreed and disagreed with him on right. these reviews. So.
0: so it was fun to do. I look forward to doing the next three. I will not reveal those three games. We'll keep Ooh. it a secret for now. But uh, Nor will
1: we share when we're going to do that episode <laughs> yeah. ever again. It could be two years <laughs> from now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it was fun. All right. Well, we want to thank everyone for joining us on this tom fassel's infamous reviews episode of hidden gems if you like what we're doing here please remember that it's a huge help if you would leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on our various social media accounts those simple things can make a difference for the show's exposure so more folks can enjoy exploring games with us Check out the BGG Guild if you want to interact with us or share a game that you think is a hidden gem. And if you're so inclined, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast or by purchasing a hidden gems t-shirt on our website at hidden gems board backslash store. And until next time, I'm your host, Cameron. It's Chris. And I'm Jason. Thanks for listening. This episode of hidden gems number 33 was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on May 15, 2022. Tell me, doctor, where are we going this time? Is this the 50s or 1999? Join us again in three weeks as we hop in the DeLorean and take a look at a trio of games centered around a time-traveling theme. Will the time-traveling theme hold up? Tune in to find out. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yonsworth. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member Ghidorah. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at HiddenGems.Podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems board. Disagree with one of our reviews? have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today, you can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at boardgamegeek.com, guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems, and until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. Well, hey, thanks for listening in on that review. That was a good review, fellas. <laughs> Tune in next time where we talk about other games that Tom Vassell hates:
0: supply chain management. <laughs>